Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. I have another two chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. Thank you for reaching out since the last episode when I asked if you all were still tuning in and just to share your experience. I received some really heartfelt messages. It gave me life. And now I know that you're still here. So thank you. And um, these chapters, I'll just give the normal rundown. This is an audio novella that I've been sharing to this podcast as I write it. It is a story for adults. So please listen responsibly and go back to the very start if you're just tuning in now. And for those of you that are all caught up, I will leave us to it now. Chapter 32 I see Aiden occasionally, with months in between. The frequency of our meetings seem up to him. He's rarely available. When we see each other, we always have sex. And it's never enough, enough seeing him. It doesn't feel great to be addicted. I come to terms with the fact that we will never get back together. And it is a slow, drawn-out goodbye. The first time after the money incident, he is less indifferent to seeing me than normal. He's eager to reconcile as soon as I am open. He arrives to my front door with the rain behind him a distant street lamp giving him a misty halo. His eyes are streaming tears when we embrace, a long embrace. I see blue lights everywhere. What is a soul connection like this worth if it can't and doesn't translate to real life? I experience his cyclical amnesia and cyclical remembering. We go for a walk in the woods by his house, end up at the beach in a hidden cove. He sits against a wall of rock and I'm straddling him. We begin to kiss and I feel so many layers between us on his side. I hold the prayer that he'll remember me. Please remember me. And I begin to feel his layers go away. As he remarks, I forgot what this was like. I hadn't. We move over to a log underneath a canopy, still overlooking the water, still alone. I still feel his heart at a distance, but he brings a finger down to my sex, a delicate come hither, as though to coax out silver echoes of the memories of this portal between us. I come in the woods, given over to a total openness to him in the moment, even though it will be hard to digest later for the way it is only a transient spark of connection. We hike back and have sex in my car, I ask him to use a condom. I'm not, like, sleeping around, he says. I know he's having sex with Kat, and they aren't together. I don't know who else she's sleeping with. Back at his house, I go down on him. From the beach to the car to here, he has shed the layers of separation I felt. He seems like a person I remember. Enthusiastic. Warm desirous. Your calm is up my nose. Sorry, he laughs. I felt you take me in so deep. It felt amazing. 
you want to use my neti pot? And he comes back with a neti pot, saltwater rinse. Spending the night is not the same. I don't sleep with him as well as I used to. One afternoon, Charlotte, from the Las Vegas road trip, Sam's friend, comes over to participate in my astrology research. After we're done talking about her life, her loves, she asks how I'm doing and I say I'm still very heartbroken. Oh, I realized Aiden's just not a good guy. He's actually a really shitty person. What are you talking about? I ask. She tells me how they do a massage trade around once a month and how they usually are both naked when they do it. And that the last time they traded, she had her eyes closed and was receiving from him when she felt something in her hand. His dick, she says, was just in my hand as he was leaned over me. And once I realized and said something, he just said, I thought you might want something to hold on to. Trying to digest this image, I ask, was he hard or? No, he wasn't hard, she said. So like, did you two come to a resolution or an understanding? I'd already massaged him and I just left after that. I mean, I knew he hurt you, and now this, she shrugs. He's just not who I thought he was, which is disappointing. I liked him. I feel Charlotte is nonchalant, that Charlotte may as well be filing her nails. I don't understand why she can't tell she's stabbing me and twisting the knife. It's her neutral demeanor in relaying this news that gets to me, the ease at which she collapses her friendship with Aiden into an illusion an error. I call Aiden when she leaves and relay the story to him. What? He says defensively. I know what she's talking about, but I had no idea she was upset about it. She didn't tell me. It was an accident. I didn't even notice. I was just in trance massaging her. We've been trading for months, naked. There's never any sexual tension between us. And I said the thing I said as a joke. To diffuse the tension. I didn't realize she was upset because she didn't even tell me. We could have communicated about it and cleared it up before she decided alone what happened and is apparently telling people about it. I believe you, Aiden, but I'm in tears. You're breaking my heart. Something doesn't translate. That women keep getting upset about you as some kind of sexual violator at your work? People that you hug? Charlotte? I have loved you. Sex with you was the most amazing healing sex of my life. I wish we could have been something. I was here, my whole body, soul, heart, absolutely open to you. We had something and you threw it away. That's painful enough, Aiden, as it is. You don't want to see me very often and yet you're out here gaining a reputation. Please stop. I know your heart. I know your sex, and this isn't even you. Whatever you are doing on your end, please stop. It's enough to have lost you. He listens to me cry for a while. I'm so sorry, he says. I don't want this either. The next time he sleeps over, he's afraid in the morning that he touched me in his sleep. 
You're so magnetic and I just want to touch you even when I'm hardly conscious, he says. My heart jumped when I woke up and thought, what if I touched you? I'm traumatized. You can touch me, I say. I'll tell you not to. I'll communicate if I don't want to be touched. I've never felt physically violated by you and I'm not afraid of that. I still love him and I'll never believe he's just some abuser. He was careless. He doesn't have the strongest boundaries. He's psychic and magical and disassociated sometimes. He's expressive and warm and detached from social norms and lacks appreciation for the social complexity. He fails to recognize when it's not safe to engage or at the other side of the pendulum isolates himself entirely. I see the dynamic as a dangerous misunderstanding, a devastating misunderstanding. In places where these misunderstandings are not very affordable, they cost deeply. The moment of letting our sex die all the way arrives. We're in his shed, the new bedroom, lit by a red lamp. I don't feel like our sex is personal to me. I don't feel him look me in the eyes as much as I want, and I'm not willing to ask for it. I think it's embarrassing already to want anything from someone who has made themselves so clearly unavailable and fickle that I think I can't risk asking for more. It only feels good physically. He's attuned to my body, but our souls and emotions are kept out of it. I must not be here either, I notice, because the villain theme song from a movie I'd just seen is stuck in my head, playing over and over. It's almost satire. In form, in matter, I have Aiden in this moment, but we are both far away from here, and I am having sex with death. This is a phantom. The Aiden I'm seeking is dead. The love that I'm seeking is dead. At a friend's farmhouse, I meet a housemate there who has a child. The mother of this beautiful child tells me the story of how her man is an ex-con, and he came out of jail pardoned. They met snowboarding. They were love at first sight but he wouldn't commit to her. They ended up living together at this very farmhouse and she played the long game. Let him heal, let him take his time. She was a good friend and she kept the candle of their love alive without needing him to do that work with her. She held it down, waited, even though she wasn't getting everything she needed. She held it down and once he chose her, he was all in. This long game took two years. And now he's forever, and he loves her and their child. I feel I had that option with Aiden. I could have moved in and let him heal. Been there as a friend when things got hard, when he was healing his head. But I didn't want that for myself. I chose to move on with my life and pursue grad school. I didn't want this for myself, not when he chose Kat not when he cut me out. I wanted to be loved enthusiastically. I didn't have the strength to hold our love by myself under the same roof. 
It felt an indignity to wait. It's snowing outside, and in the white blankness I project the timeline where it could have all worked out between he and I if I'd waited and toughed it out, made the sacrifice, taken the risk. And in that moment, I wasn't sure if I made the right choice. The bright-eyed, bright aura baby in the room, like a symbol of what could have been. Chapter 33. I don't get accepted to Naropa. The news hits me around the time of Saturn stationing retrograde. I ask Facebook for ideas and help of what to do next, and another astrologer suggests I apply to the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where Rick Tarnas teaches. Rick, the astrologer who gave the speech at the Northwest Astrological Conference that gave me the idea to go to grad school in the first place. Attending that program would mean I wouldn't get a counseling license, and with it, career security per se. I'd get to be an entrepreneur still, through and through. I write in my admissions essay that I intend to be a public figure, and essentially I want to prepare myself for that by becoming more educated. I already live in an ensouled cosmos. Believing in magic has not been an issue for me but that I could probably sharpen my capacity to build a bridge to the world at large. On the phone in the interview call, I only remember the one question from Rick that was like a hardball. He asks, If you go through this program and don't go on to become famous, will you feel like a failure? Well, I say, No. I'm not really attached to becoming famous, but I think the desire originated from a place of experiencing setbacks, and having a major goal like that has kept me motivated. I really just wanted connection, and over the process of moving toward that goal of greater visibility, I have met people I feel much closer to, and it's made fame seem like less of the answer to my longing. Rick tells me, at every increasing level of fame, and I say this as someone who knows. There are costs every step of the way. I find the encounter enlivening. Like I'm just this scrappy Aries kid who keeps losing and trying to win and has big goals like getting famous that I inform everyone about. And then I get to talk with people who have made it significantly and they are the Saturn to temper my youthfulness. And I like the way the confrontation shows me the level at which I am playing, if I'm bold enough to receive warnings like that from someone I admire. I'm accepted to CIIS the very next day. And by the time Saturn is stationing direct, since Saturn's station retrograde came with my Naropa rejection, I'm walking through the front doors of the California Institute of Integral Studies for maybe the seventh or eighth time, and I'm thankful to Saturn's lesson here about rejection and redirection. The very first time I'd entered the building, I met a group of people talking about astrology at depth. Someone is talking about being a Venus-Pluto person. My first class, I meet Ashton, an Aries who shares my same birthday, but just one year after. 
we had both been intricately tracking the transits of Uranus and Pluto to our suns for years as the transit was shaking and revolutionizing us. And though we had never met, we collide the first day of school, enrolled in all three of the same classes that we individually chose. Meeting Ashton infuses me with trust and stirs me back into aliveness again. Ashton, a mythopoetic artist, a filmmaker, a philosopher, a runner from Arkansas. Another Aries with Sun, Square, Uranus, and Neptune. How after studying together for two years, we take nature and Eros at the same time and are on a five-day camping retreat, sleeping on the earth, dreaming with the land. We're high up on a hill at night, away from a fire I can see in the distance. Can we go to the fire to get warm? I ask. I want to stay here close to my tent, Ashton says, but there are other ways to get warm. And he starts jumping, and we jump underneath the stars, laughing until our bodies warm and we're both drumming with life. I love my classmates in this electric earthquake city. Every human I meet is so unique, admirable, compelling. The program itself was founded under the Uranus-Neptune conjunction in Capricorn that I was born under. The summer of 2018, between my first and second year of grad school, the thought crosses my mind lightly that I'm open to astrology trades, and I also think of myself drinking light wine on the patio, the patio of the essentially mansion-esque house I live in in Oakland. Only hours later, I get an email from someone, Shane, who found me on YouTube and who works at a natural wine company, who wants to do an astrology trade with me, or he's happy to pay my fee. He tells me the wine is light and drinkable. I choose the trade, of course, since I'd felt him and this light wine and this astrology trade coming psychically. When I give him my address for the wine, he tells me he lives nearby, so he can drop the wine off on the way to meeting his cousin for dinner. When I open the door to Shane, it drops into my body immediately who he is to me. We open a bottle and drink on the patio, just as I'd seen in my vision. I have plans to make dinner that night for my housemates, and I invite Shane to stay. His dinner had been canceled. And he's a professional chef. So you must know what you're doing more than me, I laugh. I wouldn't take over. It's your house, your dinner, he laughs. I wouldn't assume. But we can cook together if you want. And he shows me. It begins a summer of wine and cooking and falling in love. I have a dream that Shane goes skiing and gets in an accident. And in the waking life, Aiden contacts me after a long time of no contact. I'd asked him to stop liking my pictures on Facebook because I cry every time I get a notification from him. I tell him to only contact me if he really has something to say. But now, I know he feels me falling in love again, and it tugs at something, and he calls me for the first time since I moved away. Aiden is living on an island where he went for a gig, thinking he'd make a lot of money, 
but it turns out his boss is mentally unstable and Aiden is still broke. Aiden tells me he got ghosted recently by someone he started to develop feelings for, and he says, Now I can feel what I did to you. It feels terrible. I'm not charmed. I sternly tell him I'm falling in love, and I know that's why he called. I know he felt it. I tell Shane about the phone call, about my skiing dream, about the paragliding accident, and ask him, I don't want to tell you that you can't do things, but can you value your life? Aiden didn't, and in the end, he risked it unnecessarily. I can do that, Shane says. That's a fair vow. But ultimately, our relationship feels like a facade, a paper house. There's a major disconnect between us that is never addressed directly. It corrodes our relationship and fractures out like branches of disconnection and missing one another. He wants a wife and kids, and for a strange moment in time, I may be that wish fulfilled. I am regarded as that possibility. I don't see Shane as exceeding the bar that Aiden set. I secretly resent Shane for it, and he, of course, senses it. I see our relationship flash before my eyes during a full moon on a class retreat. In such a way, I know it is dying. Involuntarily, every memory Shane and I have ever had is clicking through my mind like a slideshow of its total bloom and decay. And I just know. I've brought some of his wine on this trip and lift a glass to my lips. And there's a fly on the glass that I only realize is there when it has touched my lips. It's only a week later, Shane sends me a text from across the country that it's over and, quote, it's not a discussion. The attachment wasn't deep enough to touch me in the same place or deeper that Aiden touched me. It's still what Aiden represents that I'm grieving, but I respond to this breakup and the threads it touches inside of me by cooking every day for months. Sometimes I'm not even as hungry as I am interested in the craft. I'm fascinated by the process of a complex dish coming to life. I seal into my memory everything that Shane taught me about food as he went from being in my life to just being gone.